Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. On this episode of Garden DC, we're speaking with David L. Culp. He's the creator of the gardens at Brandywine Cottage in Downington, Pennsylvania. David has been lecturing about gardens nationwide for more than 25 years. His articles appear in Country Living, Fine Gardening, and many other wonderful publications. He is also an expert on herbaceous perennials. And we're talking to him today specifically about snowdrops, also known as galanthus. Welcome, David. Thank you, Kathy. It's good to be speaking with you and about one of my favorite topics. Thank you. Good to have you, too. And I know that one of your other claims to fame, and I have to mention it right at the top, is the Brandywine hybrid strain of hellebores, because our last episode of Garden DC was interviewing Barry Glick all about hellebores. Well, that's great. I, uh, you can't ever talk too much about hellebores. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know I'm not too far up the road from you uh, in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. Uh Hellebores are a large, large part of Brandywine Cottage. They all come from right here. Nice. And if anybody hasn't seen David's books or seen pictures of the Brandywine hybrid strain of hellebores, definitely jump online to davidlkulp.com, and we'll repeat that at the end. And you just came out with a book called A Year at Brandywine Cottage. Tell us a little bit about that. It is. Uh, brand new out this uh, past year. Uh, I was kind of amazed from the layer garden. It was very, very, very successful. Uh, when one garden writer's book of the year several years ago. So I decided to write a book about what do you do after the garden's in. Uh, you know, that's, that's another whole subject. Lived at the cottage for 30 years. And I broke it up by season. Uh, and my theory being the six seasons at Brandywine Cottage, you let your garden tell you how many seasons it has. You don't necessarily superimpose your thoughts on it. Let the garden tell you, and that's going to vary from region to region to how many seasons it has. So I've put in this book arrangements from the garden. It's kind of a holistic approach to gardening. Arrangements, uh, containers, uh, by the month, what you might be doing or considering. There's drop downs throughout it for water wise gardening, weeds, um, just a, a, a gardener's chat, much like today, uh, about how much beauty you can get out of the garden in the course of a year. And I'm just sharing a lot of ideas with my readers. That sounds like a wonderful resource to have, especially for those of us in the Mid-Atlantic who share a lot of the same plant palette as you and similar climate and growing zone. Let's talk a little bit about Brandywine Cottage itself. Is it a historic property, newly developed? How did you find it? It's a historic property. 
Yeah, well, in, in that, that it was built in the late 1790s. It was one of those stories about, like, love at first sight. I had moved back to the area, lived in the area in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania as a little cub and moved away and came back. And, and I had been searching for an old home. I had restored one in Atlanta and one outside of Charlotte and moved back here. And the simplicity of the house just appealed to me. It's a very simple, straightforward Pennsylvania farmhouse. And, and I just loved it. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, it was the all too familiar story of a place that really needed somebody to love it. And I knew I could supply the love. And I knew right away that the site had so many possibilities uh, for a garden just by the very topography. So it was a put an offer on the house. They turned it down. A year later, they called me up and said, we'll accept it. And I thought it was just kismet. And I have been having the time of my life making a series of garden and one garden, um, Brandywine Cottage. We live in the Brandywine Valley. Um, it's been the love of my life, quite actually, Kathy. Uh, it's been just a wonderful blessing to me. Yeah, it does show your passion for gardening and such a beautiful setting. And I was going to ask, what plantings were there or established before you arrived? So there was a historic home, but were there some old growth trees? What did you keep? What did you get rid of? There was old growth trees. And I made a kind of, it was my, it was my home and I wanted, and I was very much interested in the gardening and design from the get-go. Uh, and I wanted to respond to the site, just respond, respond, respond as it was given to me. So right away, my limitation or my parameters for this garden was not to change the land, to respond to it as it was given to me. I didn't take down any trees unless they were leaning or broken. I left all the mature trees. They add so much to the sense of place but I took everything else. And the way of a garden, I had nothing. I had the most virulent strain of poison ivy on the East Coast. I had English ivy, multiflora roses, and honeysuckle, which we removed over the course of years by hand because we don't use herbicides or have uh, any auxiliary irrigation uh, system in the garden as well seems like it's a fairly wet garden. Are you on a stream bed or is it no, just naturally no, I, damp? I have clay soil where you walk down to the south side of the property because you're on a hill. It's a little more moisture there. But I would consider myself a very, very dry garden. I have a well that's 360 feet deep that if I water with a sprinkler for more than an hour and a half, I run out of water to drink. So it's a, it's, a, it's a dry garden, perhaps again, because I have clay soil, which retains water when it's wet, it is a benefit. I'm always adding leaf mold to it to keep it more friable. And that's a great tip, David, because a lot of us are afflicted with clay soil in the mid-Atlantic and, of course, in a great amount of the southeast as well. And adding leaf mold or leaf compost or just a top dressing of shredded leaves uh, could go a long way. I can't think of much better 
than leaf mold or composted leaves. It's so organic and it feeds the soil. And it's what nature does herself. We're just doing what she, taking our cues from her. Uh, I put it on thin enough where it goes into the soil within the course of a year. Because I look at it as feeding the soil as well as the top dressing. Now, earlier you described yourself as a little cub. So let's talk about little cub David for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, okay. were you born with chlorophyll in your veins, as I like to say, or did somebody in your family teach you or did you come to it later in life? I was born with chlorophyll in my veins. I was blessed to have two sets of grandmothers who both were gardeners. Okay, and they both kept extensive gardens. I thought it was uh, kind of the norm. And also early on, there was a rumor going around amongst my aunts and neighbors that if David planted it, it would grow. That he had a, and I believed it. And then I just realized maybe I was cheap labor, but I've always enjoyed <laughs> uh, working with plants and being outdoors as long as I can remember. I'm sitting in my office now looking at a Dutch master cigar box, which my sister sent me, to remind me that was the first container garden that I did when I was in the first grade, okay? I was making containers and cigar boxes. Always amazed and still am to this day of just the mystery of watching a plant grow. I've always been mesmerized. And did you pursue a degree in horticulture or no. did you? No, I took the circuitous route. Uh, I don't think my parents quite know what to do. They wanted me to do more of a Coke classic white collar job. Uh, I took a, a degree in developmental psychology and then came to horticulture. I studied at Temple University later uh, only because I knew it's what I had to be doing is working with plants so i made a change and that's okay anyone who's listening to come to it just so you come to it whether it's early in life late in life uh just i would just advise everyone to follow their passion uh, uh and i just came to it a little bit later but i came to it with that much more of a drive and passion uh, to make up for lost time hmm, it's so true and is there a quintessential plant, we're going to talk about Galanthus, of course, in a minute, that drew you into gardening? Oh, well, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. perhaps. Uh, I was always right there by their sides in the garden. I remember, you know, my first big job was when my grandmother gave me a bag of bulbs and said, go out and plant them. I think they were tulips. And I asked for instructions, and she said, well, now, David Lee, you can figure this out on your own. And when she said that, she empowered me as a gardener. And I thought when they bloomed the next spring that I had done the whole thing. The very fact that she told me that I could do it uh, changed my life. And I decided that's what I want to do with my life is tell other people that they can garden, that they can do it. Um, and I made a career out of that, Kathy. I'm very happy and honored to... Uh, to say that I, that's what I've been doing. Wonderful that she gave you such free reign, too, and just told you to have at it. Well, you almost have to at it sometimes. You know, mm -hmm. I don't, you, sometimes we learn from our mistakes. And the reason they're listening to this podcast or 
taking a class is trying to limit the number. But just think of all the chefs who uh, started out with mud pies or had a cake fall, and that didn't stop them. You just keep on working with your craft as you go. It's part of the creative process. Maybe making a mistake is part of the creative process. Mm -hmm. And I won't even ask you, David, how many plants you have killed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I teach classes at Longwood, and usually the first night I tell everyone to just relax. You know, I have killed plants too, and that's why we are here, here together, is to just cut down on that number, okay? It is a living, growing, and sometimes dying art form, and it's not a static art form as well. So we just have to get used to the the cadence of life. Is a nice way to put it. You know, lives, grows, and oftentimes dies. Hmm. And let's talk a minute about your earlier book that is in many gardeners' libraries, the Layered Garden. Can you talk a little bit about that theory behind the Layered Garden? Well, the Layered Garden. Basically, it's how much pleasure you can wring out of one spot and use that same space uh, season after season, time after time, in the process of layering. And it's a spatial layering in in some sense. It's uh, looking at ground level, looking at herbaceous level, looking at shrub level, tree level, a small tree, tall tree. It's about addressing all those spatial layers in the garden and making combinations and a cohesive garden throughout those different spatial layers. But it's encouraging everyone to address them all. Then it's also a layer of time, how a garden changes in the course of a week, how it changes in the course of a, a season, a year or of a decade even. It's the layer of time on top of the garden. And then I even, in some parts of the book, uh, address the emotional layer of the garden. That sometimes it's not all about visual, that there's an emotional element to the garden as well. Hmm. So definitely gardening in four dimensions, which the fourth dimension is time, of course. Of course. But then there's that added one you're talking about. And is that a little piece of the gardener? Is that your it is. memory or history, or what would you describe that as? It's a little piece of the gardener. I think in the book I ask people to look inside themselves and see what they really love about nature. And that's going to vary for everyone who's listening today, and, and that's good. And then put that feeling into your garden. Try to incorporate, think about that, and put some of yourself in the garden. I, I think that's important. Uh, you'll certainly uh, work a little bit more when you have a goal like that or an emotional tie to your garden. You know, gardening's a process. It's not a product. And hopefully we'll be doing this for years and years to come. So having that emotional tie is very important. Mm-hmm. And there's literally the gardener's blood, sweat, and tears out there in the in the soil as well. Yes, uh, I yeah, I'm, I'm. That's just what we do, you know. We get a bug bite, we get a blisters, you know, wear gloves. It's just part of gardening. But but there's something. The plus side of that is that we're communicating 
and we're interacting with nature. You know, life's more than a reset button. You know, we're actually touching the world, reaching out. And it's not a one-way touch. Nature's also touching us and healing us by interacting with her as well. That's a lovely way to put it, David. And I sat in on one of your recent uh, webinars with the Garden Design online, and I understand that's going to be a monthly series. And one of the things that I took away from the most recent one was you're saying that you study photos of your garden beds and you look for what's missing, Um, but they seem pretty packed and full to me. How do you know what's missing? Uh, Well, you know, gardeners see their garden in collective time. I look at a space and I see all the plants that may have died there. I see all of my hopes for the future, and I see right now. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm a visual learner. So I look at photos, and I go, like a painting, how could I make this composition better? Or, to be honest, there's a, maybe a plant that I just brought home, and I go, where can I make this plant fit? without it looking like it's superimposed on the spot. So I'm all the time thinking of how to make the picture better. And it's knowing also, (laughs) it's something I have to teach myself being a a collector, that you also have to know when to stop, when there's enough, okay? So it's that thin line of being, having a light touch or being ham-handed. You have to walk that middle tight uh, rope when you're walking, but it's always fun. Again, it's if I could do it all at once, I don't think I would really want to. There would be nothing to look forward to, nothing to do, nothing to drive me forward. I like being part of the gardening process. Because otherwise, I'd be a painter. But you know, that's far too uh, gardening. Let me just put it in a positive way. It's much more participatory. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's also taught in art school is you have to know when to stop, when to step back, and it's and it's totally at your own discretion when the when the painting is done. It's done when it's done, right? That's right. And and you, as the gardener, are the artist. You can change things. You know, it's you you can make it happen. You can play with color. You can play with balance. You can play with form. You can play with uh, scale. You can play with the character of the garden. That's all you as as the gardener, the artist, as it were. Hmm. And it's always interesting to me to see how people, different gardeners, are comfortable with different amounts of filling, so to speak, in their garden beds. So some people are more austere and modern and sparse, and they don't want the plants to touch. <laughs> and then <laughs> others are like, pack it all in as much as you can. I'm on the latter group, for sure, because I think when I look and I take most of my cues from nature, when I go out into the wild, I see that plants live in communities. They like to touch. They like to be intermingled. So I like to have that feeling in my garden as well. And I like to think maybe they help me crowd out weeds as well. I just went to... I want it to look very natural and like it just happened. So 
yeah, my job as a gardener is to be a referee, is to keep the plants from killing one another. I definitely like them to touch and interact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are my favorite type of gardens too. The the ones where I let the plants just fight it out amongst themselves and maybe do a little editing to help them along the way, yeah. but you know, kind of laissez faire, I will call it. Well, it's just like you know, trying to keep the kids from killing one another while they're playing. Uh, you know, I'm I'm just a referee. I, like the garden, I like a look like you just described that maybe the garden it just might have a mind of its own to make it look like it might just have happened. But of course it, it didn't. You're, you're, you're staging that and, and managing it that way. But I like that feeling of nature has a hand in it as much as I do. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost the highest compliment when somebody comes up and says, look at these wildflowers that just popped up here <laughs> as if <laughs> you didn't work yeah. your tail off. <laughs> I get that frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I try to keep my mouth shut, and then I always have to admit, well, no, I, I, I planned it, it like that. Because that is the high compliment, to make it look like it just happened. Yes. Yeah, I, I almost got my nose bent at a joint once on a church planting I'd put in, and people would just come up and, and think that it just happened naturally. And I'm like, ah, if you only knew how much work went well, that's into that. That's a high, high, high compliment. Hmm. I'm a big fan and big proponent of naturalism. Okay, I just... Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and I think I heard a little confession in one of your uh, responses earlier that you buy plants without knowing where they're going to go in your garden. Oh, yes, Your Honor. Guilty as charged. Uh, <laughs> I do. I seldom return home without a plant. You know, I am not a paint-by-number gardener. There's something kind of without soul, soulless, about not allowing yourself to have a plant that you want and that you like. Again, I have a holding area. I'll try to make it fit. You know, when you're out there gardening and have to stop and run and get a plant, that's terrible. I mean, you know, yes, I've done there. I've been there. But if I know I have some already selected plants in the back holding area that's so much the better and i just can't resist uh, the fact some plants just speak to me and say you know take me home david i know it fits my palate that they're probably dry new a new texture and new color to play with uh, you know if, if you should be having fun with it now, i i will not be the voice of restraint uh, when it comes to plants usually so you're an enabler, in other words. I am an enabler, yes. <laughs> if, if we go to a garden center shopping together, you're not going to say, hmm, maybe take some of those things out of your cart. That's too much. No, I'll even say buy some for me and put them in your <laughs> garden, okay? I don't have room. I am definitely an enabler. Uh-uh. <laughs> if we're shopping together, I, I'm easily influenced by what someone's telling me. And, and also, if, I, if I'm like a plant, I'm more than happy to share its virtues. Um, yeah. And then we'll, or, or we'll buy it, Kathy, and then we'll divide it and both have one. <laughs> Perfect. And that brings us to, I think, Galanthus and your love of snowdrops. And I was going to ask, is there a Galanthus on this planet that you've said, nah, I don't need that? It's not a matter of need always. <laughs> 
uh, is there one on this planet that I don't need it? I think there's always room for one more. Um, with Galantis, and it's a little bit different from Hellebores with me, there are some, there, there, there are different types. There, I do believe that they're all should be used in the garden, but I have more than enough room for like straight Galanthus elwizii or straight Navalis, especially mass sheets of them. I mean, nothing's more wonderful than thousands of them in a drift. So mm. I can't say that there's one that I would walk away from if handed to me. So you're not a snob about them. You're not like. Oh, um, I I do have opinions about them as individual cultivars. Don't get me wrong. There is there's all different kinds of usage, but I do have fairly strong opinions about particular cultivars, which which is kind of the fun of it. Hmm. And so there is going on worldwide now but particularly i guess in the uk and here uh, a craze for galanthus it's not quite to the level maybe of tulip mania back in holland but there are some very high prices out there and some kind of rare bulbs so uh what do you think of this recent craze do you think it will last it's i think it will last it's been secular throughout time it was popular during the crimean war it was popular during uh victorian times it was popular during the austrian court where actually earrings that the court wore ladies what were called snowdrops okay little they look like think of the girl with a pearl earring uh it was a kind of so it's been in cycles um I think it'll last. I think it'll always be there. You know, there's a lot of good reasons. They're in the Amaryllis family, which means they're deer resistant. And the prices, well, you, you know, I'm, I probably have paid more than I should for a snowdrop, but there's a lot worse things in life to spend your discretionary income on. And with a little bit of luck, I could get my bulb to increase in the course of a year. And I just say, Gee, they're outperforming my 401k. Uh, if it doubled in a year, I'd be very happy. So I, I live a life of no regrets with what I spend on snowdrops. Mm -hmm. And I think the key word there was discretionary income. You're not spending your mortgage on it. Close, but not. <laughs> <laughs> but not. So you talked a little bit about expanding if you say got a nice couple of bulbs that you really like, do you just plant them out straight in your garden? Is there a transition when they arrive? And how do you get them to multiply maybe faster than they might naturally? Well, both. The answer is, you know, I often look at my snowdrop. It's the only thing, Kathy, in my garden that I label, like my snowdrop collection, of which I have over 200 cultivars. So you have to label them. Um, and I keep them in, in the garden because I'm always about, whether it's hellebores, whether it's about galanthus, it's about garden usage. It's about using them in the garden. So I try to stage them in the garden so they look garden-esque. 
I also have in my little growing area, I've risen to new heights or, or sunken to new lows. I will row them out in stock beds till they bulk up and then I move them to the open garden and I can see how they behave in the garden. And I can see if there's any diseases in those beds. But having said that, I put them in stock beds or I put them in the open garden. I'm more inclined to put them in a stock bed because I have the space so I can bulk it up faster. By that, I've prepared the bed to be well-drained with a good amount of that wonderful word, leaf mold, uh, leaf shredding. They like, you know, they're a woodland edge, edge plant for the majority and they like it well-drained. So I make this the soils that way so they will increase faster. And the stock bed, is it literally a raised bed, like with a wooden edge, or how do you... It's, it's literally a raised bed with a wooden mm -hmm. edge because I, I manage it as a collection. Now, because I have Brandywine Snowdrops, uh, as a, I, I do sell them, I, I'll have to keep them labeled and I, and I watch them and keep it and keep them separate. Um, and I like to make sure as I bring them in that they don't have any disease that I might introduce into the open garden. Um, hmm. Are snowdrops vulnerable to disease? I hadn't heard of any. No, not really. Uh, they're great. Uh, there is one that staggy. It's 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 a fungus that actually uh, gets on amaryllis as well. It actually it's transmitted, and and it's soil borne. So that's about the only big problem. It's not even a big problem. You know, anytime you deal with a monoculture, whether it's hellebores, whether it's dahlias, whether it's roses, whether it's galanthus, there will be something that's particular to that monoculture. And But I don't say that I lose sleep over it at all. And in general, extremely low maintenance. Oh, yes. You know, you go to these old farmsteads, and the house is gone, and the galanthus are still around the outside. I mean, they've been there for hundreds of years, especially in this area, in Nivalis. Uh, you, you can almost see where an old house was by by the drifts around it. They're, they're there long after the house is gone. Hmm. Yeah, I have lived near a stream valley park, and there are definitely pockets where the homesteads were that you can see nice drifts of snowdrops all, all around. And they're generally that one that you mentioned, the common novalis. And I was gonna ask, and sort of a, a facetious question is, they're such a tiny little flower and the differences between them are almost minute. Do you go out with a magnifying glass and a kneeling pad into your garden? How do you enjoy them? Well, I enjoy them every time I walk back and forth to the car. I, 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 um, I like, I tend to like a bigger snowdrop. It stands out, but I vary the size of them. And yes, part of it is about looking at little tiny nuances. Okay. I mean, we're talking markings, the angle of the flower, the way the flower is rounded, or if it's angled on the outers. But it's training your eye to look at detail. And now whether you're judging dinner plate dahlias or 
tea roses, the more your eye becomes accustomed to looking for nuance or color grades, the better you'll be, whether it's snowdrops or any of the other aforementioned genera. Uh, detail and color grade is important. This is the first one out, and nuance is important to cultivar, but again, overall effect of large sweeps is equally important. I will go often go down and bend and look at it and touch them to look at the inner marking. And that's okay too, because they're participatory plants. You have to touch them to enjoy them. That's part of the lure of it. There's the uh, turning up snowdrops and looking at their faces, if you will. No, I don't mind that at all. And do you ever cut any to bring inside? Maybe the, the tiny bud vase? All the time. I usually put them by uh, a side table. Sometimes if I have a guest, I'll put them by a, a, a bed stand. Because when you bring them inside, many of them are fragrant. They smell like almonds or honey, especially if you make a mixed arrangement with hemimalis and snowdrops in a small little vase. I had not noticed their fragrance before. That's a, that's a great tip. Bring and, them into the warm, and they will. And some some varieties are more fragrant than others. Hmm. And do you ever force any for early bloom indoors? I do. I always. I right now on in my compost, I have a flat of a tray of sixteen, uh, ten bulbs in a four-inch pot that I planted last fall. And as I bring them in the house or inside when I want to force them, or I'll bring them in the garage and let them warm up a few weeks earlier so I can use snowdrops in containers as well. And I always have a little pot full ready to put in a container for my February containers. So it's a great trick. And there's always that little spot in the garden that you see, oh, wouldn't a clump look good right there? Well, I have one ready made for that spot by making these little forcing four inch plastic pots and containers. And after they're done in the containers, do you plant them back out into the garden? Oh yeah, I take them out of the container, put them in the ground or in the pot. And when they're done, say I'm using it in a, a, a mixed planting container, I take them out of the, the pot, put them in the, the larger container. When they're done flowering, I take them out and put them in the garden. I like plants that do double duty. Mm -hmm. And they do bloom for you in consecutive years, even if they've gone through that stress? Yeah. You just make sure that you don't destroy, you know, disturb the roots too much. You know, treat them reasonable, you know, water them, give them adequate sunlight. You know, they're, they're fine. And even if by some really unforeseen you know, the dog sat on them, you know, whatever. Um, they'll usually recover within a year. They may not bloom, but they'll often recover unless you've, you know, been overly abusive to them. Hmm. And are you giving them any extra fertilizer or special nutrients? Uh, in my stock bed, the ones that mm -hmm. I'm trying to grow on. Well, here's a good little tip. Not everyone knows, I think, but I will take, as much as I can remember, half-strength tomato fertilizer and put it, you know, make it a liquid 
watering can and, and I'll feed my snowdrops with that. I'm not a, you know, I don't in the open garden. I have way too many to do that to. But the ones that need a little extra attention, I'll give them half-strength tomato fertilizer while they're in a leaf. And is there a brand you recommend for the tomato fertilizer, like Espoma or one of the others? Oh, I can't. Until they start underwriting your program, <laughs> I'm not going to make a lot of When they start doing it, I will, Kathy. Great. <laughs> so, but that is a great insider tip that I'm definitely going to use. So can you walk us through the snowdrop season from the earliest varieties to the last? So is it as early as November, December, and, and what are those? No, it's early as September, October. Wow. My snowdrop started in the autumn. I have the autumn blooming snowdrops. And as you go further south, folks will have better luck with the, what we call them the ROs. The Regina Olgays. Uh, they're native to Corfu, Sicily, uh, the southern parts of the Crimea. So they like it warmer and well drained. They start early on, so do the fall blooming Elwesiis, Hemnalis, the winter flowering ones. They've been blooming now, like I said, since uh, September, October, November, December, January. You know, and they're going to go another two months. So this is the thing that allows me to say that I have something blooming in my garden 12 months out of the year because they grow through all the winter. We're back into the Elwizi eyes. Okay. After the Elwizi, uh, and, and the hybrids, uh, which I like uh, a lot of Elwizi eye hybrids because they usually have a bigger flower. Go And you have these other adjunct species in the fall. There is um, a lot of new ones being discovered in the past few years. Versinus uh, is one of them that I recently, and that one is hard to find. Uh, right now, the Nivalis are starting to nose up. That's when they come out of the ground, the term is called nosing. They start sticking their noses out of the ground. They're usually the last to bloom. Uh, but you can stagger them all the way through the winter, uh, winter months, depending on the time of the year, uh, on, on, on the species of bulb that you're using. And this year in particular, which seems to be a fairly mild winter so far, knock on wood, knocking on my desk. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, do you think that we're a few weeks early in our bloom About cycle? About a month, dear. About a month. Yeah, that's what I've been noticing as well. It, it, it is about a month, and I feel like we're having an English winter. Now, having said that, we live in the mid-Atlantic. We know full well that this could change in a matter of a week. You know, it could change in March. We could have a, but we've been fortunate so far. And I think the season must culminate for you with your annual Galanthus Gala that you host. Uh, it does, and it even goes on. But that's when all the galanthophiles uh, get together. And it's not just the galanthophiles. It's, it's all the plants people kind of get together. We usually have it the first week of March, the first weekend in March. And people can leave their gardens guilt-free and talk to other plant geeks. Uh, we let our geek flag fly. We, uh, we come together. 
and we celebrate galanthus because they're blooming. It's kind of like the opening of the season, the social season, the plant season, if you will. So you get galanthophiles and you get really serious plants people coming together for socializing. We had people coming from Maine, southward to southern Virginia, North Carolina, westward to Ohio, Vancouver, Washington, the state of. They came from all over. I think we, that was the last time I was out basically last year was that first week of March after then lockdown came. But um, yeah, it's a great, great draw uh, as far as an event. And we have speakers from all over the world come to speak. I used to, for 20 years, would go over to the winter show in London at Vincent Square and go to uh, Galantis Day at Shaftesbury. And, and then I finally realized, hey, we can do the same here. I'm a big champion of four-season gardening, winter gardening. So if we just emphasize it and celebrate it, uh, it, it can happen. And it certainly, certainly has. We're going forward with it again this year. So despite COVID, it's going on. Is it virtual or it's live? It's all virtual, dear. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I want to keep the community together, just like we are doing today with this, keeping the plant community together. I want to do that. It's all virtual. And on the plus side of being virtual, we have people who can join in all over the world. Okay, we have a happy hour before, we have uh, the night before, we have lectures during the day, an auction, and just the reach uh, that you can have by having a virtual is exciting, I think. And one day we'll be able to reconvene together outside, but until then, we'll keep in touch. And do you have a date for it this year yet? March 6th, I do believe, March 6th. And we have a website. Galantis Gala, and I think we have a Facebook page as well. We haven't put the announcement up. It's looked for it within a week, announcing. Well, I can give you a scoop, can I? Uh, I can tell you who the speakers are. Nobody else knows. Yeah. You. Uh, Anne Repinow from Germany. She has the hottest little book out on Galantis this year. She's a lovely photographer. She's speaking on... Snowdrops in my German garden, six months of snowdrops. Uh, it's a beautiful book. It's called, uh, she's calling it a, a snowdrop. Her book is a snowdrop ramble, uh, but it's lovely photographed and lovingly written as well. Cal Matier from uh, Victoria is speaking on poculiform snowdrops. He's a snowdrop breeder, has a great, great eye for snowdrops. And then we have a uh, Jessica um, Parker from England speaking on the historical perspective for some of the English manor houses on snowdrops. So we're going to take a walk down memory lane, some snowdrop history, if you will. And, and that's one of the things I like about snowdrop is that every snowdrop has a story behind it. Who gave it to so so-and-so? Where did it come from? Even the name itself, there's a story behind it. I like that. That definitely lends to their charm a great deal, of course. Yeah. And I have to ask, because of the name, Galantha's Gala, uh, it's not a formal event, correct? 
Well, we all try to clean up a little bit, but it's not the tiaras and ball gowns at all. Uh, it's more, you know, uh, it's the real gardeners. We Everyone is there socializing. But beware, just because you think someone next to you looks like your aunt or mother, uh, sometimes she'll jump in front of you to get that special snowdrop, okay? Uh, these people are serious, and they're trying to find the latest and the greatest snowdrop. So sometimes uh, people jump in front of one another to get a snowdrop. It's fun to watch that enthusiasm. Not to the point of having to break it up, but it's fun to see the enthusiasm. So almost needing shin guards and pointy elbows. Yes, you want to get there. We had people lined up a block to get in the door. They came in busload last year. It's, it was really, it's really catching on. It's really catching on. And it is, as you mentioned, similar, even though it's not people wagering houses. There's vast sums uh, for snowdrops right now. It's, 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 it's a cr definite craze. Hmm. And it's not just the flowers, the bulbs themselves, but also I noticed I was browsing on Amazon for some of the older Galanthus books, and they're going upwards of several hundred dollars for some of the outer print books. I think I probably know the one you're talking about. Uh, yes, and I try to always get the latest. There's been so little written on snowdrops until the last 20 years, okay? It, it's There's been so much new out, and there's so much to learn. I find that exciting, too, is that we're, we're learning so much about a group of plants. That's that's fun. Is there a worldwide Galanthus Society or a membership no, group? No, there's, there's not. Galanthus, you know, we're called Galanthophiles. I'm sure people will call us many other things, but we're we usually... <laughs> we'll gladly call ourselves that. Uh, a galanthophile is someone who can't say no to a galanthus. Um, and there are groups all over the world because there are German events. There's several that I knew of before lockdown in Germany, Belgium. Uh, England, of course, was the, the start of this. Uh, started at the RHS Winter Show. The Alpine Society, the Rock Garden Society, Shaftesbury. There's snowdrop days all up and down England. Okay, there's very common. I've been just trying to beat that drum that there's a reason that we can have them here. Uh, um, and it's only natural that here we are on the East Coast where there's a strong interest uh, in them where it originated. And for those listeners who might not have access to an outdoor garden, say they're indoor gardeners or they're in a retirement home, do you know of any local mid-Atlantic public gardens where they could see a variety of, of snowdrops? And can they come visit your garden? I'm open by appointment only and for groups. Uh, we're still, and we're, of course, by all government regulations. One of the premier gardens, I think, in America on snowdrops might be in Delaware, Winter Tours. It's a public garden. Uh, it's vast sheets of snowdrops. Having said that, I know I've seen them at Green Spring. I know I've seen them in 
public gardens in the D.C. area, maybe not vast sweeps, but you and I are going to correct that. <laughs> and, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, winter tour would probably be the largest collection, but there's, there, there's, I, I know there's some at the New York Botanic. Um, collections are starting to build. And you said your place is open by appointment, and that's for small groups or individuals, correct? Small groups, 10 or more. Mm -hmm. And how would someone contact you to arrange that? My website, David L. Culp. I think Brandywine Cottage will also take you there. But just go to my website, info at, and it uh, magically wind its way towards me. And you know, I have you on my list of, short list of gardens that I want to visit as soon as COVID lifts and allows. Well, I hope you'll get here as soon as you can. <laughs> you're, you're missing. You're missing. <laughs> Come visit. You know, the gardens are best when they're shared. They're, uh, especially when you have an appreciative uh, person like you walking along beside you. Well, thank you. And thank you so much, David, for sharing your passion for Galanthus, your love of gardening, and all your knowledge with our listeners today. Well, thank you for having me. I love snowdrops. There's such a message of cheer and hope. Uh, I, I can't help but love them. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. If you can't be in the garden, the next best thing is to be with a friend like you talking about them. Thanks again. Happy gardening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Growth Cycle of a Gardener From the photos I share on Instagram and elsewhere, you might get the impression that I enjoy snow and cold, which couldn't be further from the truth. I loathe and detest the damp, chill, and frigid winds. As my garden matures, though, I begin to appreciate the winter interest in it. I also can acknowledge the need for the garden to, quote-unquote, go to sleep for a period every year to rest and rejuvenate. If not for this respite, I don't think I'd ever get time to attend to the indoor projects such as repotting orchids and starting new violets. I suppose we should consider ourselves fortunate to live in a climate here in the Mid-Atlantic USA that gives us four distinct seasons, or is more like 12 of them? Each month seems to bring a drastic shift in temperature, rainfall, and winds, though some say we only have two, hot and humid or cold and rainy. No one is more aware of the daily changes in weather than a gardener. For the several weeks of drought we have in late summer usually, I fret over my new plantings and regularly check on my annual containers that dry out so quickly. When I remark on the drought without any precipitation at all, a friend remarked, what drought? What different worlds we inhabit from non-gardeners 
That got me to thinking of the various kinds of gardeners I've been observing in my rounds of garden club meetings, flower shows, and garden tours. The first major categories I encounter are the blooms versus foliage crowd. Those who garden to grow flowers are deemed frivolous by those who have moved on to, from the more showy parts of the plant to the more hidden features. Personally, I'm still a flower nut and choose most of my plant purchases for their ability to provide me with cut flowers. But I'm being slowly won over to the other side. I ran into Joel Lerner, a landscape designer and the former columnist at the Washington Post on landscape design at Brookside Gardens one day. And we had a chat about the Osmanthus Goshiki false holly growing outside the visitor center. The pink tinged leaves and creamy tones have me shopping for a few to add to my own shrub borders now. Next on my list are the plant whores versus the selective snobs. Horrible names and highly accurate. These garden types are easily disguised in everyday life, but their true colors fly when they attend a plant exchange or seed swap. I'll readily admit to being in the plant whore category myself. Anything and everything can find a place in my yard, somewhere. And if I can't squeeze it in, I'll foist it onto friends and family. The selective snobs kind of puzzle me. Why even go to a plant exchange if nothing meets your high standards? I suppose they're hoping there might be something there for them to take, say a pristine new introduction or rare overlooked hybrid. As my garden is getting even more crowded with older plantings filling in, I'm sure I'll be a selective snob soon myself. As a gardener moves from dabbling in the hobby to all out addict, there is one thing we all have in common, shrinking lawns. For my part, I've purposely gotten rid of any turf grass on my property. In my opinion, it's the most labor intensive and least rewarding thing one can possibly grow. For some lawn is such an integral part of their definition of home that I understand they have an attachment to these large swaths of green. Still others are constrained by homeowners associations or are overruled by a spouse or partner and cannot fulfill their desires to turn all their turf into planting beds, but they can dream. No matter where you are on your gardening journey or spot on the spectrum, gardeners are the best kind of folk. Plant Profile, Oakleaf Hydrangea Oakleaf Hydrangea, Hydrangea quercifolia, is a native woodland shrub that flowers in early to mid-summer and has multi-season interest. The plant's name comes from its large lobed leaves. The fall foliage color is beautiful and the exfoliating bark in the winter is attractive as well. The oakleaf hydrangea can tolerate more sun, sandier soil, and drier conditions than its hydrangea cousins if planted in a location with some afternoon shade. The one thing this shrub hates is wet feet as it is susceptible to root rot, so give it a spot with good drainage. It is very low maintenance and there's usually no need to prune it. Should you want to cut it back at all, always do so immediately after they finish flowering before next year's buds can form. Don't wait too long or you may prune away those flower buds. No fertilization is required, but you can top dress it with an organic mulch around the root zone in spring and fall. 
there are several beautiful selections available on the market. Peewee is a compact plant reaching four feet tall and three feet wide. Snowflake is a mid-sized oak leaf that grows four to six feet tall and wide with oversized summer clusters of double flowers. Alice is one of the largest oak leaf hydrangeas, growing up to 15 feet tall and wide. It flowers profusely, first in creamy white tones, then turns to a rusty pink by the end of summer. Oak leaf hydrangea, you can grow that. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash kathy-gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.